everyone, and welcome to the You Know When You've Been Furcoed edition of Romaniacs. At the time of recording, the closest the government has to a path forward on Brexit, after Speaker John Burko ruled that Theresa May could not bring her deal back for a third time without substantial changes, is to kick the can further up the road, with a short extension. How short, whether the EU will grant it and what difference it will mean, make remain to be seen. BBC's Brexit cast described this week as Erskine mayhem, and we have to take our hats off. We can't improve on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ros Taylor, and with me, sporting a thousand-yard stare and visibly flinching at the words amendment, prorogation and Marc Francois MP... <laughs> is Ian Dunt, cackling away there, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. How are your nerves? Uh, nerves, I think, are pretty good. Um, how is my general sort of existential disposition? Uh, pretty shit, actually. Pretty, pretty, pretty gloomy. Yeah, I don't blame you for that. It's, it's looking worse yeah. than ever, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah, is. It's looking yeah. pretty, pretty bad. Do you have a copy of Erskine May? Because it's 100 quid on Amazon. Yeah, I don't have it on me. Sorry, 400 <laughs> quid on Amazon. Made that wrong. 400 quid. <laughs> No, that isn't necessarily how I choose to spend my last 400 quid as well. And it's getting higher all the time, I expect, yeah. John Burko might be putting his on eBay soon, so keep an eye out. <laughs> Set up a smart search. We have not one but two special guests this week. Roland Smith is a lever-turned-Article 50 revoker. In the run-up to the referendum, he made what he called the Liberal case for leave, citing largely economic arguments for disentangling Britain from a centralising European Union. Since the vote, he's become increasingly disillusioned with the reality of Brexit, and he eventually concluded we should call the whole thing off. Indeed, earlier this week, he described the current scenario as a travelling shit show. <laughs> and he's definitely won the most interesting episode for Maniacs for a former Lever to appear on prize. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Roland. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. We're going to talk about your Brexit journey in detail later in the show, but was there a specific moment that convinced you this cannot be done? Oh, heavens. Um, there have been so many moments. Uh, I think it's just been a very gradual journey, a very gradual steps over a very long period. Um, I think Chequers was the, the moment, though, that I saw this going in the wrong direction completely. And that's when I tweeted um, that I'm going to withdraw my support from leave. Uh, I didn't say much more than that. Um, I didn't switch to remain or say anything else about revoking Article 50. Um, but, yeah, I think that was probably the moment I just thought, I, this, up with this, I cannot put any more. And all the lies and the nonsense that have just gone on and people doubling down left, right and centre, you just can't morally um, stick with it. And that's where I got to. Also with us is a man who was so excited by the events of this week that he actually unprotected his tweets. Whoa. It's the Laura and Policy Commentator, FT Contributing Editor and self-confessed Judy Walters sound alike, David Allen Green. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Not all lawyers sound like Geoffrey Cox. <laughs> you are now the artist formerly known as Jack of Kent because you killed him off this week. Why? Yeah. Time for him to go. You know, ten years ago, everybody had sorts of fancy blogging names and uh, it just seems a bit odd after a while so yeah I, I, I just let, I let him go I don't know what he's doing now he's probably wandering around Soho <laughs> <laughs> probably close to here actually yeah yeah, yeah. Um, this week has been legal Greek geek Christmas for you hasn't it um, will you ever be able to come down from this high? Oh, this is the most exciting time to be a constitutional lawyer since the 1680s. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely—it's not a crisis, though. It's not a constitutional crisis. What's been quite splendid is that even if Ian's politically uh, disillusioned and depressed at the moment, the constitution itself has, has, has shown itself quite well in checking the government. The government did not want to get its way, uh, and it didn't. A uh, Solicitor-General calls that a constitutional crisis. I call that a constitution working. But we still don't know where the hell we're going, do we? There's, there are three ultimate destinations of all this. Uh, the question is, is not only which one we're going to get, is what, what sort of stuff we're going to do on the way. Uh, none of these extensions by themselves uh, takes us to any of the destinations. We just, it could be deal, could be no deal, could be revocation. Plausible pathways to all three of them. Hmm. Right. <laughs> we'll get into that in more detail later. 
Uh, and we've got two quick reminders now. It's the big Put It to the People march in London on Saturday the 23rd and the Romaniacs Blue Block will be assembling on the corner of Park Lane and Curzon Street for 12 noon. Come and join us and remember you can print our classic protest banners created by Jason Hazley and Joel Morris of Philomena Kunk fame from the Romaniacs Patreon page. Apparently, Jeremy Corbyn will be in Lancaster on Saturday for a national campaign day, pushing for a fairer society and Labour governance in Morecambe and Lunsdale. But never mind. (laughs) You can be there in his stead. And don't forget, you can also see Romaniacs and the cream of political podcasting at the podcast's live Politics Day in London on Sunday the 7th of April. Among the shows that have just confirmed are Politico's EU Confidential, the new European podcast Sophie Ridge on Sunday and our arch-rivals... Brexit cast from the BBC. There may even be a dance-off in the car park, Anchorman style. Tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. Patreon supporters get a discount on day tickets as well as admission to the Romaniacs show. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. OK, the gates of hell are open and we might as well walk straight in. On Monday, John Burko ruled out the dreadfully named MV3, leaving the government's Brexit plans in total disarray. An extension of the exit date of nine months or longer seems inevitable. Ian, can you concisely sum up that disarray, please? Okay, so what we thought was that she was going to put forward a sort of two-pronged extension request, which there was no guarantee that anyone was going to tolerate, but whatever. We didn't just think it, I mean... she sort of said it. I mean, she put the motion forward was was framed in the typical kind of contorted way that made you think someone's up to some slippery shit here somewhere, but I wonder which part it is. However, when, I mean, the, the factual statements that were put out by DexEU by the department in order to substantiate it very clearly said there will be an extension that will be A or B, A being short, uh, B being long. And David Lillington, about as clearly as you could possibly get when going for the government on Thursday, sort of basically said, look, it will be long or short that we're going to go for. If there's no deal done by the time that we go for the extension, it has to be long. It cannot be short because that would be completely irresponsible and a bunch of other things. Lo and behold, this morning, it turns out they haven't got a deal and they're going to go for short anyway. However, there are I mean, look, there's a lot to be, I think, quite quite vigorously cross about about the stuff that went on today just the, the, the fucking catalogue of lies that we've been treated to over really just this morning by the Prime Minister however I would put one warning before we get there which is taking a look at the letter she sent to the EU again in the same manner that we saw on Thursday for the motion the language was extremely contorted all over again and it sort of had these potential exit routes of going I don't want to take part in the European elections etc etc so you could imagine on the basis of it her even after extension had started if we get it once again trying to extend it once she got to the point that she thought no deal was there but I think at the moment you have to think it's a bit of a glimmer of a hope because it seems over and over she'll keep on capitulating to the ERG and that this morning seems to have brought us to a place where she's asking for a very short extension which I would treat as basically a de facto ploy to get MPs into a position where surprise surprise once again it's her deal versus no deal. But of course, it's entirely up to the EU anyway, whether they grant an extension and how long it is. And there are rumours today that Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is not going to allow much of an extension at all. Um, Do you think that they will roll over and let us have an extension even if we ask for it? The current messaging is, well, A, we don't know what's going on with Macron and it's perfectly possible. The French have always been... I mean, there's some figures that are quite senior in, in sort of French politics who've suggested actually for a while that they, they could handle no deal a bit better than, than we think. And actually, in the medium term strategic sense for France, it might not be the most terrible thing that's ever happened to France, even though it would be catastrophic for them in the short term. Um, uh, the statements that we saw suggested that they w- would be talking about um, May, really sort of about the same time as you'd be having the elections, um, or that they'd expect extension to go on much longer. Now, at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's any demands from the British side for the extension to go on much longer. MPs seem quite scattered. I don't think we can expect Labour to put up a strong fight on this. So suddenly her request, which is for the end of June, gets narrowed down to about halfway through May. The thing thing is, that is absolutely absurd. I mean, (laughs) May is no time whatsoever. I'm talking about the month here, not the Prime Minister. Um, There is just no time whatsoever. There is talk, I I understand, that we have to notify the EU that we're going to put forward candidates in the European elections by Mm mid-April. Well, Parliament rises on the 4th of April. 
that's about a week after we're supposed to actually leave. And there just is no time. And this is the real frightening thing about this. She has absolutely blatantly run down the clock and will continue to do so. She's teasing you, Ian, with all this hope. Mm -hmm. She's dangling it in front of you. If you uh, think I'm experiencing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I get it. <laughs> There'd be a pleasing symmetry if Macron said no, because... The UK's European adventure started with President, French President de Gaulle saying <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's now going to end with true. a French President Macron going <laughs> no. Uh, book ended. Uh, as regards Burko's ruling, in hindsight, it looks as if it was inevitable, but actually it was unexpected and Burko did not have to make a ruling. He could have just sidestepped it all because an MP asks for a ruling. It doesn't mean the Speaker has to give one. It was entirely plausible he could have given a different ruling because he made his decision not just by applying precedent, but applying precedent in the circumstances and context of his particular situation. And it wouldn't be that difficult to have found an exceptional circumstance to distinguish this from previous applications of, of the precedent. That ruling uh, was not inevitable. What was going to be inevitable this week were difficulties in getting MP3 through. And what Burko's intervention has done is provided a convenient thing to be blamed for them not even trying any more with MP3, MV3. Uh, and so where we are now legally is that we are going to be leaving next week on Friday at 11 o'clock. Well, sure, that's where we've always been legally. Um, however, I mean, certain things, I think, have changed. I mean, the, the Burko ruling... Uh, limits Downing Street's ability to bring back a deal in some context. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. The legal advice that I was hearing that morning, which is not the way that it turned out, but from most constitutional experts that I spoke to, thought actually that when we talked about the substance of a motion, it was meant in quite a broad way where the Speaker's judgment would include an idea about the will of the House. And that by virtue of that, he, it would be open to him to hold conversations with MPs to try and substantiate some of those weekend reports in the newspapers about people moving over to her deal. And that would be treated as a difference in substance. That is not what Burko said at all. Burko basically said, you have to come back with a change in the deal itself. He kind of, I think, sort of opened the door to saying that an extension attachment to it would constitute that. But he didn't confirm it at all. And I think it's perfectly possible she could come back with that. And even then he would say... You don't have an ability to or, do this. Or a change to the political declaration. Yes, exactly. Because there yeah. are two documents under Section 13 of the Act which have to be placed before the Commons. So a material change in either of them would be a substantial change for, for that motion's purposes. So And so it wouldn't be that difficult to get round this ruling. What has the government, to my view, has clearly done is found a wonderful excuse not to bring the MV3 back and not to have that third defeat. Yeah, well, they, but they weren't acting that way on the day. I mean, on the day they were... I mean, they were... Well, they were in fucking chaos, to be honest. I mean, well, we all were, really. I mean, no one was expecting it to go that way. And the government certainly seemed completely astonished and angered by it. Although by this stage, I mean, they're so full of sort of tribal conspiracy theory, tin hat nonsense that you can't really tell. I mean, they, they've, they've definitely drunk the Kool-Aid. So to them, he is basically like an enemy combatant who's just sort of, you know, behind enemy lines and changing the rules of the game. It was, sorry. It, 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 it was a surprise, in a way, but it was not entirely unforeseeable. Right, yeah. And for Downing Street to be blindsided is yet another example of this best-case scenario government has done with the whole of Brexit, mm. where it doesn't actually ever think through contingencies of things not working. It's like its own sort of just-in-timeism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, Bert Burko is the perfect scapegoat in all this. He's, he's democratically immune, effectively. He's in the autumn of his career. He is an utter pain in the arse, and he has been for years, and Conservatives, I'll say proper Conservatives, hate him from years when he was the chairman of the Federation of Conservative Students. Um, he, he is just there waiting to be a scapegoat. So I just looked at all the front pages the next day thinking, yeah, th this is the perfect guy to stop Brexit. Um, yeah, because no one else is going to take ownership of this thing. No one is going to stop it because will of the people, 17.4 uh, million. Minus one. Um, and uh, <laughs> they're just not going to. Some, they're all waiting for something to turn up. And Burko has turned up. And he's free now. Yeah, he can do what he wants, can't he? Yeah. So the only other circumstances in which Barnier might extend, um, uh, it might agree to an extension, would be if we had another general election or another, uh, another referendum. Isn't that right? So are the chances of that increased at all? Well... No, A, right now, neither of those things are looking good at all as of this morning. I thought they were looking pretty good last night when I went to sleep and not so great when I woke up. Um, 
I think there are other contexts too. I mean, Bunny keeps on sort of going, we'd be perfectly open to coming up with a, a bigger idea on the future relationship document, you know, by which he's basically, you know, making pretty eyes at Corbyn because they quite like the, the, the general sound of Corbyn's stuff around that because they basically think what that really means is single market membership and customs union membership is really what you're talking about when you talk about that kind of thing. And that they think they could probably do that relatively quickly. I, John McDonald today was saying three months, I don't, uh, you might be able to do that in three months if it was very wishy-washy. You wouldn't want to have to. You know, you might want to just give yourself a bit longer because, of course, uh, here is the, the rational case for it and therefore, of course, completely irrelevant to anything that we're doing in our politics right now. But if you're a rational actor, you might as well take the long extension. If you get the deal, you can leave whenever you like. If you go for a short extension and you haven't got the deal, you have to ask all over again in a mm. scenario which they're, they're extremely uncertain to grant it. So it makes no sense to go for shortening. You're simply narrowing your own room to manoeuvre. But I would say that that, you know, some kind of change in a future relationship document alongside another election, a referendum, would be the sort of things you could do with extension. And just for completeness, there is another way of changing the date once the deal is agreed. Because once the deal is agreed, it can be post-dated. That's the mm -hmm. other thing under Section 50 which allows a change in date. But one is an extension to the Article 50 period. But once the deal is executed and agreed and ratified by both sides, it can be post-dated to take account of any other. What that stops, though, is any Article 50 revocation because the right to revoke Article 50 stops once the agreement has been ratified by both sides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your view on this thing that's come up in the last uh, 24 hours, actually, whereby we could almost end up with a Schrodinger's no deal, whereby uh, the EU grants us an extension, uh, which we, of course, accept, um, but we can't get our own domestic legislation changed in time mm -hmm. for the 29th of March. So you have this really weird situation where we're kind of in the EU. It's a, it's a kind of a no deal. Um, but we're still in the EU at the end of it. So it's sort of we, we've done Brexit, but we haven't done Brexit. I mean, it's, it's absolutely it, it, fucking it, genius. It's, oh, going it's, um, it's, going to, <laughs> it's going to get wonderfully complicated. And how, it's how going do you to be delicious. How do you draw back? Uh, it's that? going to be really wonderful because you're going on internet as a matter of international law, you're, you are either a party to the treaties or you're not. And once you're not party to the treaties, then you are no longer under any obligation under those treaties and the EU in turn under no obligations to us uh, and that is a binary situation uh, and that is why article 50 uses the phrase treaties cease to apply because as a matter of what's called public international law you're out yeah yeah but uh, the UK does not have a sort of legal system which means treaties have immediate direct effect internally it has what's called the dual system uh, which means that it has to be somehow enacted. And the European, Communi European Communities Act is the method by which free treaties take which effect in our domestic gives law. Effect to it, yeah. That, the European Communities Act, is to be repealed yeah. on the 29th of March. There is primary legislation that says that. I'm not sure about the legal status or whether it's been put into effect yet, but on the statute book it does say that. And to get rid of that needs a statutory instrument. May not be enough time uh, for, 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 for that. Oh, and as regards extensions of Article 50, it has to be to a specific day. There has to be a day where the treaties cease to apply, yeah. and it has to be specified. So we can't do the sort of Disney copyright thing of copyright terms being eternally minus one day, mm. just so you could actually have a certain period. It does have to be a specific date, so it can't be for further notice or anything like that. What do you think of... Uh, Bridget Powler, former guest of the show from the Hansel Society, wrote a blog the other day yep. on precisely this issue, yep. the, the gap right. between the domestic and the international uh, Brexit day. And she suggested that the latest that we could pass a statutory instrument uh, to change it domestically was Monday. Mm -hmm. right. Now, there's no indication politically that anything would have changed or that we'll even... I mean, even looking at the EU right now, we're talking about, talking about this next week. The same thing with the government. So... It seems that all of the political decisions are being made post the point that is the last point of return for changing the date in domestic law. Is that your take as well, that Monday is the latest it could be? Or? I think using the usual methods of putting statutory instruments before the House, yes. Uh, but if it was an exceptional situation, there are other ways that you could address the situation. You could have emergency legislation to repeal the relevant provision. You could have an SI to actually not give effect to certain provisions. There are other ways around it, but okay. they would take planning, they would take time, 
And you just really hope they have thought these sort of things through. Because mm. we might be in a <laughs> right, Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, another one. Don't worry, I'm sure they have. I'm, so, I'm, I'm sure, sure it'll be fine. Government lawyers are very good. I, I've never said anything. I used to be a government lawyer myself. They are very good, but they are only as good as those who instruct them. And the problem is, is that so many of the ministers are, are grailing-like in, in their arrogance in actually listening to useful advice within their departments. Mm. So, so we could actually drop into a domestic legal void. Well, could we not? Brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the politics then, the politics catching up with that, where, because we stated, we are now have a foot out, yeah. in effect. And if we have a foot out, what is that going to oh, do to oh, the oh, politics we, of this thing? Oh, the other delicious ingredient in all this mess is that uh, the meaningful vote is just one bit of uh, ratifying uh, the deal. There are Section 13 of the relevant Act provides four things which need to be done, four infinity stones which need to be collected by the government before they can <laughs> go out and actually fly. As, as, I, as I must a... make clear that I can understand concepts without relating them to the Marvel Universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but two of those infinity stones are okay. One of them is the... Uh, meaningful vote, but there also has to be an entire Act of Parliament passed to implement. Mm -hmm. right, that Act of Parliament has not even been published as a bill. There are probably parts of it which are so horrific that they are being kept in a shed at the back of one of the government departments because nobody can dare show it to the Brexiteer MPs. Uh, and that would have to pass before the end of May. E even for the deal to go through, as well as the meaningful vote. And what you could have is a glorious situation where the meaningful vote is passed, but the implementing legislation is blocked by the ERG or the Lords or whatever, and then we'd still go crashing out and May will have won her meaningful vote. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that is underpriced, the idea that the legislation itself is held up past the point of no return. That must be underpriced. Roland, you're a revoker now. Has this week brought us any closer to revocation, do you think? So that's a very good question. Um, so I've taken the view that whenever the risk of no deal rises, the risk of, uh, if you can call it a risk, probably not in this august company, the, the, uh, the revocation likelihood also rises by a corresponding and equal amount. We just don't really see it or talk about it. So on that basis, yes, I suppose it has, but I still think it's a long way off. I, I, as I said before, I just don't see MPs really wanting to own this. And, and they should be asking themselves, even if only in private, what is my preference between revoke and no deal? And I'm not sure whether MPs are really asking themselves that hard question, because it may come. It may come and it may hit them, and they need to have an answer. I don't think the public even sees it as an option because it's not discussed. They've no, kind of ruled it out of their mental universe. Yeah, yeah, and of course it'll just be treason and you know bastards and get rid of them and start rioting and all this nonsense that the uh, the Brexiteers are really pushing. David, I take it you agree that revocation is just a way off. I've no idea uh, as the politics of it, uh, but it would, could be quite legally difficult. I'm sorry to keep on throwing these legal difficulties mm. in front of everything, but it, it, uh, some lawyers think that the Prime Minister could just revoke, could just send a letter to the European Council and it would have the opposite but equal effect of the original notification uh, and the system would come to an end. The only requirement, it seems, the only Explicit requirement, it seems, from the European Court of Justice decision is that it has to bring the process to an end. So it can't be used in an obviously cynical way. But as long as it meets that fairly low uh, requirement, then, then, then once the European Council accepts it, then, yeah. Other lawyers, cleverer than me, uh, no doubt with double firsts... Uh, <laughs> oh, don't start that. <laughs> uh, ..say that you actually can't just do it through prime ministerial discretion, it actually has to have uh, primary legislation, just like the Notification Act, but again, equal and opposite. You can see the symmetry going on here. Uh, I think all lawyers agree that 
it would be legally safe if it was in primary legislation because then it can't be judicially reviewed by anybody. Uh, but you'd have to get that legislation through. And that that would not at all be, be easy for the reasons which Rowland has agreed. This would mean MPs had to actually had to own the decision to, to, to revoke. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And, I, and I, I don't see them owning it. Uh, this, this is where I think really you do have to put it back to a referendum. I think MPs just oh, God, revoking no. it. No, I'm afraid so. <laughs> well, MPs just, just revoking it. It's just not going to wash politically. Um, it may come to it just through des- sheer desperation, uh, which is why I say MPs really need to think privately about what they would choose in those circumstances against no deal. Um, but really, this should be going to another referendum. Yeah, I mean, speaking and, of... Which we may lose, sorry. Yeah. You, you may lose that. Speaking, speaking of that, actually, I've, I've, the latest polls seem to suggest, amazingly, that if you uh, put No Deal against Remain and uh, you put May's Deal against Remain, uh, people actually prefer No Deal, which yeah. is extraordinary to me, uh, given the choice between the two. But that seems to be where it's going at the moment. But the internet chatter among Brexiters seems to be more and more that May's Deal is, is worse than remaining. And do you feel that that's, that's the route which, down which they're going? It's, it's splitting, fundamentally. There are some people taking that route, um, and there are some people taking the other route. So, so some are absolutely convinced that no deal is the right way to go, um, but you, and we'll probably try and engineer it. Um, but you have people like Hannan, for example, Hannan and Carswell particularly, who are openly talking about a 21-month extension and shouting its praise, praises. Perhaps, perhaps that's overdoing it a little bit. But they can see from their perspective that um, that might buy them time, uh, fundamentally, to get it right, knowing, of course, that the prospect of revoke, remain, rises, as well as the prospect of no deal rises. If I were still a Brexiteer, I would take the Hannon Harswell view. If, if you are going to actually Brexit, do it properly and get the 21 months. Don't keep doing it as a as a pace, yeah. and stop trying to treat a complex situation as a simple one. And, and I would be the same, yeah. um, but perhaps I'm a little biased these days, but yeah. I would be the same. But, I mean, the other thing I would say about this is, is 21 months is no time whatsoever. We're all sitting here yeah. looking at the current situation, thinking a week is just a horrifically short time, long time, whichever way you want to look at it, and 21 months is just an eternity. Actually, 21 months is no time whatsoever, and it will be around in no time, and nothing will have changed fundamentally, I don't think, at the end of that. A couple of smaller subjects before we move on. Labour and a people's vote. Ugh. Starmer and Corbyn <laughs> have issued contradictory statements and signals to, that's a bit of an understatement, uh, but never mind, so often that it's unpo- impossible to know where the party stands. Ian, where does the party stand on another vote as of Wednesday afternoon at 2.44pm? I'm going to sound like a broken record. There, there basically is no fucking party. Okay, so it's basically, it's just a series of warring tribes. That's all that it is. And so when we keep on thinking, where is Labour now? It's like, no, it doesn't exist. There is no Labour. There's basically just a bunch of teeny little mini parties who have opinions at any given moment. I mean, one of them is obviously Seamus Milne, and he, whatever he says will obviously be pushing against having another referendum. Uh, one of them is Keir Starmer. Whatever he says will obviously be pushing towards having another referendum. Uh, Corbyn is in the slipstream of Milne. <laughs> Not entirely the best metaphor I've ever used in my life. Um, but nevertheless, but occasionally gets tugged in another direction. <laughs> now, this <laughs> is getting worse and worse by the fucking moment. I always uh, think of it as chained to a radiator, but anyway. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's good. I, I see that. I see that comes from experience. Um, so at the moment, he's quite clearly trying to avoid any mention of a referendum, and almost to the point of it, he's almost sort of mocking it in a way because he keeps on saying, and it needs a people's vote, and the people's vote will be a general election. You go back to basically going, oh, you cheeky son of a bitch. Like you're, you're basically side eyeing us. Um, the talks that he's had this week, he seems much more positive about the conversations he's had with the soft Brexiters, um, with the, sorry, I beg your pardon, what is it, the Commonwealth 2.0 or whatever. Common market. Common market, common market. How could you get that? Commonwealth 2.0 is an entirely different thing. Yeah. Um, so look, that's where he seems to be right now. But look, that tug of war keeps on going on week after week after week. So it, it, there is no specific Labour position. That just indicates to you the tribes that happen to be winning the battle this week. Do we give much credence to the idea that he's he's tired and he's an old man and he wants to step down? Or is that just wishful thinking? <laughs> My part, anyway. I don't know. I can't read into that. I can't. I just felt like we spent the last two, three years looking at Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's blank fucking faces and trying to read in some kind of psychological motive. And there, there isn't anything there. They're just empty 
they're like Russian dolls, but there's only one doll. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The nice. thing about watching the politics of, of this, one of the worst things about having to deal with Brexit is actually having to watch Prime Minister's questions. And, <laughs> and I'll be so glad when it's over that I never have to watch any parliamentary session again. But watching today, I, I thought it was quite strange. Uh, May, instead of just tearing into the opposition, was tearing into the House. Yeah, she yeah. was blaming the house like as if they were worst naughty school children, and the house has got to live with its consequences. The house is just dawdling or something along those lines, and I was just thinking, you know, Peel during the Cornwall crisis or Gladstone during the Home Rule crisis, he, uh, were embattered prime ministers. Neither of them started tearing into the house as a whole. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any other Prime Minister who has actually started attacking the entire House of Commons for not getting their way. That's why I feel more constitutionally nervous than you do, I think. And, and I get that, like, you know, this week was good. It was a good moment constitutionally. It showed there was something, some part of Parliament standing up. But I, I, she has proved herself with this idea of having this sort of popular sovereignty at her back, this referendum result, which is a, a, an entirely new source of legitimacy to the one in Parliament. She's proved herself to be quite a, quite a disgraceful prime minister. And I agree that moment today where she seemed to be attacking the institution of Parliament, not MPs, not her body, the institution of Parliament for opposing her deal. I mean, when she says Parliament has to stop dithering, you're like, well, they haven't really dithered. I mean, they've twice told you that your deal can fuck off. I mean, that's called a rejection. That's not dithering. It was just like a political breakdown. That's quite dangerous. It was like a political breakdown. I was half expecting her to start singing Daisy Daisy any moment. (laughs) (laughs) She, She just does not know what to do other than to try and keep getting this vote through. And... I remember watching her as a, as Home Secretary because obviously doing the law and policy stuff, I had an interest in her. And she was very good at forcing legislation through. Uh, she did it with the Data Retention and Regulatory Powers Bill. She mm. actually got a judgment of the European Court, said to everybody, this is really time critical, I've got to force this through. She's actually quite good at these very, very narrow, determined tasks. But she's not very good at complex thinking. And it's it's almost painful to see her. She doesn't know what to do apart from just banging off the wall again. That's it. I mean, she's just a battering ram, fundamentally. Yeah. And she's just going to keep going and keep going until she gets her deal through. Which is um, the extraordinary thing, right? Like, you look at the, you yeah. look at what Barnier said yesterday when he said, you need to show us a plan for extension. And instead she comes back and sends in a letter going, my plan is I'm going to try and put my deal through yes. again. You're like, did you not hear a fucking <laughs> word they said? I wonder, she might get it through and everyone will hate her and everyone will hate the position we're in, leavers and remainers included. Before we move on, we couldn't let this week's podcast go by without mention of Nigel Farage's March to Leave. The Gammonable Run, as it became known, <laughs> mustered oh, maybe... awful. <laughs> Maybe 200 people for its first leg in Sunderland on Sunday. By the end of the day, Nigel Farage announced he wouldn't be completing the march at all, leading, leaving friend of the show James O'Brien to describe it as the perfect metaphor for Brexit. 60 or 70 poor souls abandoned in the weather by wealthy business, media and political figures who are back in London, dry and warm. And by Tuesday, there was a crowdfunder to pay back the few score people who had paid £50 each to participate. Is it is it wrong if we find it this funny? Because you know, after all, they they mock they mock our marches and they say you know they're like Waitrose queues and so on. And maybe we should refrain from mocking their march. I don't know. What what do you think? I mean, it won't surprise you to learn that I disagree with that idea. <laughs> no. Well, I don't. But this this desperate attempt to not offend and not offend who? There's like about thirty people walking by the sea. I mean, they're not representative of millions of Leave voters. They're just people who are foolish enough to believe that Nigel Farage means a fucking word that he says and to pay for the privilege of going on a protest. I love what you can do to people who've never gone on protest before. You're like, oh, actually, it's a silver tray protest that you have to actually pay money for. No, of course you can slag people off for being morons. Fuck me, if you can't do that, there's nothing left. <laughs> one, well, but one participant said it's like walking in the Falklands following the flag again. <laughs> oh, my Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But against that, against that Ian, is uh, Nick Curran's point that if we keep mocking Farage, we sort of make him into uh, making him into a sort of joke figure we underestimate him, this is somebody who even though uh, the faults are apparent is one of the most successful politicians of recent years, by the sheer test of actually getting politically his way 
I, I accept that. And, and far be it from me, generally speaking, if anyone says Nick Cohen says something, then by default, I agree with him. However, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think mockery is a not just a sort of important, but a necessary tool in politics. Like, I can't stand when people, whether on my side or the other, pop up to me on Twitter and be like, you really shouldn't talk that way, it's unhelpful, as if it's, as if it's part and parcel of the abusive culture. And no, I think it's important that in journalism and also by the public themselves, that you mock and reduce politicians. That is part of the, yeah. the way that democracy has to operate. So whether he's effective or not, I think he is a prime target for, for mockery and that one makes the world a better place by doing so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying anything about the Leave marches because I'm just going to get into more trouble with Leavers and, <laughs> and told I was never a Leaver in the first place and I'm a snob and I've got my, my head up my own arse and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm keeping quiet. I've never done a march ever since I was one, did a school play called The Walking Class where it was going to, about a bunch of Birmingham comprehensive school children who were going on a march to London for jobs. And it was probably the worst play ever <laughs> conducted uh, on a school stage. And ever since then, that's put me off marches of all, all sorts. <laughs> but you are the concept of basically like protest democracy. Well, it must have been a terrible play. Oh, it was dreadful. Uh, I only had one line. They wouldn't trust me with any more. <laughs> <laughs> We're delighted to have Lever turned Article 50 revoker Roland Smith on the show this week. Roland, who do you blame for the collapse of Brexit? Is it individual Leave leaders or the dawning of reality? Oh, goodness. Um, that's a very good question. I, I think uh, Leavers for some time have been at war with reality. Um, and I was saying that um, perhaps not so explicitly during the referendum campaign itself um, and in the run-up to the referendum campaign, but I was certainly a part of a group um, pushing the Norway option um, that was very dismissive of Vote Leave and uh, Business for Britain before them and what they were saying because it just, to us, it didn't stack up. What was slightly curious is that before the end of January 2016, Vote Leave were actually incredibly soft on pretty much everything. Um, in fact, we were having a go at them for not really wanting to leave at all. They were into reform, and they talked about reform all the time, and they talked about second referendums. Um, if, you know, this got so far and we needed to ratify what came after. Um, it was quite bizarre, actually, at the time. And then suddenly Cameron Steele came back and they just gradually turned. It wasn't overnight. Uh, I think Gove's speech, I think it was the end of April, where he finally ruled out the single market and Cameron thought, hey, the bank's open, free money day. Um, we're bound to win now uh, for Remain, uh, as did I. Um, and uh, But it just all went down from hill from there. I think once the single market was ruled out, there was just no going back. And they have just doubled down constantly ever since. So it wasn't... Without getting too conspiracy theory about it, it isn't that they always wanted the hardest possible form of Brexit and they've just been lying to us about that all the way through. It's that they've gradually moved towards the hardest form of Brexit. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I personally, my theory is, is that none of us thought we were going to win this. It, it, we just weren't going to win this. Remain was going to win. It was all about maximising the percentage. Um, and, you know, there was talk about, you know, we just need to get into the 40s and, you know, that'll be great and we can kind of move on from there. Um, and my group was saying exactly the same thing privately. You know, this just was not... We were supposed to just blow the bloody doors off, um, mm -hmm. going back to the Italian job. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what was meant to happen. And, unfortunately, Cummings um, and Vote Leave just utterly, utterly went for it and just told a whole load of shit... I still think to this day the campaign was bloody appalling. Uh, everyone on leave thinks it's absolutely brilliant. It was bloody appalling. Uh, it's just that Remain was even appalling-er. <laughs> <laughs> You've described the WTO option. Um, it's, it's the I have no solutions and can't be asked to think option. Um, how did we get to the, the point where WTO is even an option? Well, it never was an option. Um, as you know, I mean, leave, vote leave um, campaigned and saying it's going to be the easiest deal in history and we want a deal, it's going to be a process, not an event, and yada, yada, yada. And it was, again, coming back to this, this real softness. I think it's just got here because they have not accepted reality. They all still have what I call the leave instinct, which is where all this starts for, for leavers, in my opinion. And I must stress that's just in my opinion. 
They have the leave instinct that we are moving towards a country called Europe, and that is at the nucleus of all of this. It is not free movement. It is not the money. It is about a country called Europe and identity being stolen. And once you believe that and you start moving down a particular path, which in this case was coming out of the single market, coming out of the customs union, basically coming out of everything, having nothing to do with it, and then you get a prime minister who, although wasn't a lever, basically inhaled all the leave narratives of vote leave, uh, courtesy of Nick Timothy, then you are on a road to nowhere. And eventually you either fess up and say, OK, actually, do you know what? This is bollocks. Um, or you just keep going and you say, OK, well, everything else has been ruled out. What's left? No deal. That's what we're going for. Hey, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be the best deal ever. And all this complete and utter nonsense. And you just you just paint yourself into a corner fundamentally. And that's all that there is left. This is the end of the road for Leavers. Do you ever see like a sort of flicker of recognition from them when you, I mean, when you say things that are critical? As in, you know, they're not going to be able to question your credentials from, you know, having been there in the campaign. Is there ever a flicker of, oh, wow, if my own allies are sort of peeling off, that's bad? Or are you just instantly written off as some sort of traitor, Judas? It, it's it's mostly the latter. Um, I mean, I tend to be, uh, I, think, I think I've been rather humoured. I mean, there were some back channels going on in the campaign. Uh, I had a back channel to someone very senior in, in Vote Leave. Not, not Cummings, not Elliot. Um, but... Yeah, in the end, they were going to do what they were going to do. We were just kind of people out on the edges. I mean, banks uh, humoured us particularly, um, Aaron Banks. So he was trying to claim that he had bound all of the Brexit groups together. And he was he was claiming that pretty much from September 2015. And eventually he went with a Norway option, basically Flexit by Richard North, which was the group I was in. Um, and was going to rebadge it uh, with Richard North, and this was going to be Leave.eu solution. It was going to be the market solution. Yay! Um, we're all we're all in the money, and you know everyone's happy. But unfortunately, it just went down in flames within within hours, never mind days, because everyone in UKIP just totally attacked it and said, "You are must be bleeding mad to go down this route," including Farage. And I I don't know this, but I think Banks was fooled by it because Farage has previously bigged up the EEA and talked about going to the EEA as a first step. And I'm told on very good authority from within UKIP, UKIP policy, that Farage was still toying with it in the autumn of 2015. And I think Banks was just fooled. So it was fundamentally about sovereignty, because I think what you were saying amounts in a, in a sense to, to the idea of sovereignty. But it, the, refer, uh, the referendum was won on the back of some very different ideas, like the NHS and uh, opposition, opposition to freedom of movement. So it, it morphed into that. But what is it now? Um, what, what is the driving force of the Leave movement? What is the most important thing that they must hold on to? Is it, is it still sovereignty or is, has it got much wider? No, I, I think it's still sovereignty. Um, I think that's always there. It always runs through everything. Um, free movement is actually a very recent thing, relatively speaking. I mean, I've been on this thing for 30 years, um, outrageously. Please tell me I look too young for that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in the 1990s, immigration wasn't a thing. It yeah, just wasn't was, a thing. When I was uh, in my Eurosceptic times during Maastricht, it was never about free, no, free it movement. It wasn't talked about at all. It, it, was, it, was always, it was sovereignty. It was being put into a position where the UK would never be able to get out again, or yes. at least not easily. Yeah. It was about federalism and European superstate and ever closer union and all those sort of yeah. The concepts. Word. Yeah. Uh, never, never about freedom of movement. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, this is it. I mean, it then comes to, well, what happened to the Norway option? What happened to all that? And, you know, was I naive? Was our group naive? And I think in the end, the answer has to be yes. I mean, Euroscepticism has been taken over. Um, and that's what the Eurosceptics of old, the Maastricht era Eurosceptics like me, like David, um, Hannon as well, is that there's a whole stream of them that go back a long way. For them, 2016 was um, making amends for Maastricht. It, it was revisiting Maastricht. It was getting our own back. That's what it was. I mean, my yeah. Twitter handle originally was White Wednesday, which is a throwback to Black Wednesday. That was the Eurosceptic name for it in 1992, which was the whole Maastricht era again. Um, but 
what we had refused to say, I think, and what Hannon, interestingly, I, I find Hannon a very interesting character, um, and I do know him from those, those old days, um, he seems to just always sort of carry on on this route, this Maastricht route, uh, just not seeing what's going on around him and occasionally lamenting what's gone wrong. Um, but never really sort of coming and confronting what has gone wrong. And I think in the end, certainly the whole Norway option thing, I mean, I've said the Norway option in the end was was actually on reflection, just political theory. Uh, You look back on it, it was never going to fly. The the, the Eurosceptic critique uh, sort of ran out of steam after Lisbon because being a Maastricht-era Eurosceptic, what one part of that view of the world was was an antagonistic view towards each new treaty, each new treaty amendment. Stage by stage, the European Union was taking on more competencies, was becoming more complex institutionally, and so on. Treaty after treaty. Well, after Lisbon, after there was not going to be any more treaties. If uh, there was probably never going to be another European Union treaty of, of the same scale of Lisbon. And so, in a way, part of the essence of Euroscepticism, Maastricht-era Euroscepticism, fell away because it was it was to pit yourself against the next big move of European integration. Mm. Uh, that well, that fell. Yeah, and it so, used to be all about the pound, didn't it? Yeah, I remember when it was uh, when the UKIP's uh, logo was a pound, a pound sign. Yeah, and so when you haven't got a thing to be against. You often don't have that same sort of steam, especially, and that's that happened with with Euroscepticism. And so, by the time this referendum came about, Euroscepticism, in its sort of Bruges speech, Maastricht sense, was actually quite dormant. Mm-hmm. And what then happened were the sort of, well, I personally think, like Bannonism, this sort of let's you know break it, let's say, let's see what happens, mm-hmm. sort of approach, filled a void. And another aspect of why Euroscepticism just disappeared was a point Ken Clark made when he voted against the Article 50 notification. He says, until two years ago, or one year ago, he said, it was Conservative Party policy to push for the single market, to push for membership of the European Union, and just very quickly, very with shallow support for that, just went. And so what you had were people coming in who were not historically Eurosceptics, because the key to Euroscepticism, from my point of view, was that you were sceptical. You weren't absolutely against it. You were just mm. trying to make it work. Mm. That's a very good point. I mean, just just going back to the 1990s, I mean, that, that, yeah. that's an excellent point. I mean, it was about genuine scepticism. And if you wanted to talk about leaving the European Union, I mean, it was like, you know, trying to find, you know, under the counter porn or something or drugs, you know, it's kind of all I'll go and talk to Fred, he talks about that, you know. <laughs> no one no one sensible talks about that. You know, and, and it was it was very much like that. And the Bruges Group's uh, logo the Bruges was, was speech flying itself, swans. The Bruges speech itself, if you look at it, oh, it's, it's very, very much a pro you it's, incre- it's incredibly speech. tame. It's incredibly tame. And and that was kind of the guide guiding light of, of the Bruges group, which was actually full of academics actually back then. Um, so I do take your point. I mean, the, the point about Lisbon as well, I mean, that's that was said to me during the campaign. It's been said to me subsequently. And, and I do take the point. I think just psychologically, I mean, I come back to this point about we didn't, I didn't make that leap. I just didn't make it. I thought this is a, this is payback time fundamentally, and Lisbon had its own issues. It came out of the constitution. Well, a constitution is a state. We're back to a country called Europe, and there was the whole thing about Cameron's betrayal, and he was going to give us a referendum, and then he wasn't. So it was just picking up on that. But what we found in the referendum is those of us who were arguing things, which we thought Euroscepticism had always argued for, it's kind of mm-hmm. an EFTA kind of solution. It was kind of technically right. But it just lost sight of the politics totally. And when you look at that camp now, as I do, and, you know, I, I still have an awful lot of sympathy for it. Um, it is, it's a technical solution. It, it's kind of, well, does it stop us paying massive amounts into, into the EU coffers themselves? Well, technically, yes. Does it only allow us to take on 25% or is it 10% of, of EU laws? Well, technically, yes. Does it allow us to stop us free movement? Technically, yes. You know, and, and all the, it's all technically yes. And it appeals to a kind of technician's mind, which unfortunately I have. I work in the technology sector. 
and also someone who's not really plugged into day-to-day politics, you know, really raw street politics. And that is very characteristic, I find, of people in that camp. And that includes me as well. You know, I've always been someone who learns this stuff from books. I, I don't go out on the streets. I find it tiresome and tedious and... I'm not a particularly gregarious person. I quite like my own company, if I'm honest. I'm revealing quite a lot about myself here, aren't I? Um, and <laughs> that you want us all to leave? Well, yeah, and and, and yes, I mean, you, you kind of learn things from your kids as well as, as you go on. I have three lovely daughters, and I, and they're growing up, and they have their own challenges, and that's very difficult. But but they have their issues. You know that we have a lot of ADHD in the family, and the question's been around: Where's that come from? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of shit, and you know I'm reading this diagnosis, thinking shit, that was me. You know what's going. So it, uh, well, the only point I'm making here is it appeals to a certain type, very intelligent, if I may say so, um, very intelligent, slightly on the spectrum, as everyone is in the technology sector to some extent. <laughs> it's just the way of things, and a very much a technician's mind, but it is detached from the politics, and it has become detached, and we just missed it. And you can't see any way that it might sort of swing that way now with the kind of conversations that are going on between Labour and... and no, no, I don't, uh, because it confuses Norway Plus or Common Market mm. 2.0, not Commonwealth 2.0, uh, never talk about the empire. Um, <laughs> it, it confuses that with pure Norway, which is, we were only pure Norway, um, at, which, which comes on to another thing, which is, when did we talk about customs? When did we talk about Northern Ireland? Mm. We didn't say a thing. And you know, even Flexit, which was, is incredibly advanced, you know, really cannot take that away from Richard North. It is incredibly advanced. It's the most advanced thing out there. But in February, at the start of this campaign, it, it hardly said a thing about it. And that was, that was the issue across the Leave movement. Nobody even thought about it. We'd just gone to meetings for years and years and years talking about this island nation. And it turns out we're not actually an island nation. That's pretty bloody fundamental. We're not surrounded completely by sea. There's a bloody land border. We've seen several of the Leave intelligentsia recanting in public, like Oliver Norgrove and Ben Kelly. Is there a tipping point or a, Walker, a Walter Cronkite figure who would change the game if they withdrew their support? Oh, goodness me. Um, it would have to be someone very senior um, and very uh, visible, very credible. And, yeah, you can start to see this is going wrong already. I, so I don't have a, a big issue with Hannon. I, I know how he operates. I, we go back quite some way. I'm certainly not friends with him as such. Um, but we got quite close at, at Oxford um, in the early 1990s and uh, had lots of drinks together and whatnot and arranged things together and had events together. But I, I know how he operates, and he is... He's, he's the guy that I thought, and I think I even said at the time, if we're going to have any reconcilia- reconciliation here, Remainers have to learn to love Dan Hannon. Well, that is not going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. I can see it. And, in fact, I'm now in the space of thinking if we want any reconciliation, leavers need to learn to love Ken Clark. You know, it has turned completely 180 degrees. Um, but I would have said he's, he's not likely to do it at all, but he would be a massive uh, moment if he came out and said, look, I have been for, for years arguing for an EFTA solution. Um, how has it come to this? Which effectively he has said in tweets. Um, and recognising, this is the last bit that he hasn't done, that it's leavers who've brought us here. It's leavers who have doubled down. It is the leave narrative, which he was a part of, he was a key figure in Vote Leave, um, that has transferred over to May. This is where it has got, to, got us to. Um, May, to be fair to her, all she's done, actually is put flesh on the slogans. That, in the end, is it. And that is disastrous in the Leave movement. As soon as you p- make a plan flesh, everyone turns against it. She's also recognised the trade-offs. She has actually recognised she's made some trade-offs. It's all about free movement, you know, bugger sovereignty and everything else. It's about stopping free movement. So to be kind of fair to her, she has grasped this in that way. But... I, th- I, I can't see Hannon moving now. I, I, he's, his career rests on it, which is something mine 
doesn't. And that is the case for Oliver, and that is also the case for Ben Kelly. We, in the end, are just three ordinary blokes out there. Me and Ben have families, we have mortgages, we have normal day jobs. We have come into this via a tech platform, Twitter. And it's been a ride, it's been a journey. But actually, that probably should have been the first warning sign, is that <laughs> we are ordinary blokes and we are being elevated. We are being elevated up high. I'm appearing on Newsnight, I'm appearing on Sky News. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Something. There's, there should be alarm. I mean, there's all sorts of alarm bells that should have gone on over the many, many years, the whole 30 years of this. But, but that should have been one alarm bell. The end of the show is looming into sight and cannot be delayed. David Allen Green has already contributed to the Brexit time capsule and now, Roland Smith, it's your turn. What's going into our underground locker of things we'll miss or need if we leave the EU? So I would like to put in all the terms that we've grown to love. So what sort of terms have we had? So we've had the backstop. We've had the backstop to the backstop, the mini backstop, the Brady Amendment, Malthouse Compromise, Malthouse B, and I would like and zone of possible agreement. I would like to get all these, package them up and put them into the Times capsule. And the reason I say that is because if this comes to an end, and I grant you that is a very big if, but if this comes to an end, our lives will lose meaning to some extent. I'm looking at Ian here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Fucking hell, I feel this, like I get my life this back. Whole experience, <laughs> this whole experience is providing, we don't realise this, but it's providing shape and form and meaning to our everyday lives. And I experienced this with Maastricht, and I wonder if David did as well, is it comes to an end and you suddenly think, oh God, there's no more late night votes and there's no more you know f papers full of things and it's sort of looking through c-fax as it was back then which is a sort of weird it did, it, it did come to an end with maastricht because it did yes at that point it, i realized that after maastricht it would always be too much effort too much cost to for the uk to leave yeah and so like some sort of jacobite coming to terms with hanover and succession i just thought of it, okay it's over. That, set, that yeah. question's been settled. Obviously, I'm not going to be very happy with it, you know, future amendments. But the key question of UK being inside or outside, I thought that was the moment and it went. And it, and it did go, didn't it? It absolutely went. And the papers, there was, I was scanning the Times every day. You used to buy newspapers back then. And there's, there's nothing in here. My, you know, my life is empty. Well, my life was then filled because I got married, I had kids, my career so got back. I sort of left Euroscepticism at that point. And then 20 years later, I then come across the same people who I hadn't yeah. seen for 20 years ago, but they kept going. And that, that, that's exactly it. And I was one of those people. So I came, I got married in 1995, life intervened, and I didn't take too much, pay too much attention to this. So all I would say is we will miss it and we'll get to a point where we go to a retirement home, we'll all meet up and we'll want to open that time capsule and start having little arguments about the Malthouse compromise. And who was Malthouse anyway? And I'm starting to ask that question even today. And, <laughs> and we'll just have, it'll just give our lives meaning again before we fall asleep and finally drift off Remaniacs to another adventure. reunion, yeah. <laughs> In an attempt to persuade Italian fascists not to veto an extension of Article 50, this week's European language clip is in Italian, although listener Frank Sowerby-Thomas says, I'm told by Italians that my accent sounds German, so who the hell knows? Ah, questo maledetto Brexit. Non dimenticheremo mai la terribile vergogna causata al paese dai fallimenti di questo governo. That means the bl this bloody Brexit. We will never forget the terrible shame inflicted on the country by the failures of this government. Send us your European language clips at info at com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guests, Roland Smith. That was great fun. Will you come back on for Meaningful Vote 9 whenever it happens? It doesn't happen. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to David Allen Green. What are you going to do without legal minutiae to worry about if Brexit just withers away? We were talking about this earlier, but I mean, what, what meaning will your life have then? What well, what you turn to? Whatever happens, the legal implications are going to carry on for a fair bit uh, and so and at some point the book will actually come out as well which details lovingly the madnesses and idiocies of, of Brexit. Are you going to write that? I'm, I'm almost finished it every time I come to a natural end to it I think oh I'll just wait to see if there's any new developments which I'm not expecting and then the you know, madness and idiocy comes out again in a way which I hadn't quite expected. And the Chilcot type inquiry as well um, of course. 
Yeah, so, well, one day people will be looking back at this and trying to learn lessons. And what also will happen is all the pundits, or many of the pundits, will look back and go, oh, that was inevitable all along. Of course. Mm. Of course. But in fact, it's still open. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And, I, you know, obviously I emphasise how fascinating this is. But at some point we're going to have to look back and go, well, what actually did go, go wrong? A bit like we did with Iraq. And at that point, it would be really quite useful to have time capsule documents because people need to understand at the time these options were open and we didn't know what was going to happen. And hindsight is going to remove that. Listeners, keep an eye on your podcast app. There may well be an emergency podcast before the week is out. In the meantime, <laughs> here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a salute to some of our Patreon backers. See you at the march on Saturday. Hello, thanks from me to Robert Stephenson, John Arnold, Veronica van der Worst, Martin Tau, Robert Blessett, Jane Knowles, Theo Sanderson, Sue Charman Anderson, Adam Brocklehurst, and Nick Dan. I apologise to everyone whose names I just catastrophically fucked up. Hello, it's Andrew the producer. Hello to Sam James, Jonathan Ezer, Tom Kent, not Jack of Kent, David Harley, Richard Boardman, Glyn Matthews, Robert Wells, Aged Dolls, which is possibly a band, who knows, Ghislaine Peart, and Jeff Park. And hello from me to Thomas A.W. Fallowfield, Jean-Vincent Chardon, Daniel Block, Giles Wilson, Richard Whitehall, Erica Neustadt, Nick Brook and Matt Coy. Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor with Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.